Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I'm going to do a deep dive into why Republicans suddenly love the post office and are willing to pass legislation out of the House to fund the post office now that Lewis... This is a 16-year bet that the Republicans laid down in 2006 that they could stop the post office from electrifying their vehicles. That's why they did this $5 billion a year pre-fund the whole retirement thing program. And now that DeJoy has said, okay, I'm about to sign a contract and it's going to be 90% fossil fuel vehicles, now the Republicans are saying, okay, now we'll go along with giving the post office money. No problem. We'll get into that. Kathy Ferguson will be with us and what Build Back Better means to West Virginians. And of course, it's your calls on whatever you'd like to talk about. But first, Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for a progressive town hall meeting, taking your calls. Congressman Khanna uh, represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back to the program. What's on your mind? What do you see happening in Congress? What should we know about right now? Well, Tom, thank you for having me. We are uh, focused on a few areas. First, we're still trying to get something done on Build Back Better, on climate. If we don't get it done now, it will really be a challenge, especially because of the uncertainty of the 2022 elections. So there is a push to get something before the president's March 1st State of the Union, or at least a framework until then. We're pushing on voting rights. Of course, now it's been caught up, as you feared, with the Electoral Vote Count Reform Act, which which we, of course, need. I mean, we want to do that, but it can't uh, ignore the provisions of kicking black and uh, brown people off the voter rolls and not having ballot boxes. So that there is movement on that. And then the uh, Innovation Act, uh, we passed the House. It's passed the Senate. Uh, we're working on reconciling that so we can get that to the president's desk, which would be $200 billion for advanced manufacturing, production, and advanced technology. That would be a good thing, right? I mean, shifting away from depending on China and Taiwan and Mexico for so much of our technology? Yeah. You know, Tom, I think there was a misconception in, in our country in post-1980 that it, it was fine just to invent things and that the mass production didn't matter. Well, we didn't invent the jet engine or the automobile. We mass produced it and we excelled at production of that. And that's what built us into an economic powerhouse and creating high wage, good jobs. And we've lost all that production. I mean, we did invent the semiconductor chip, but all the mass production is in Taiwan. 
So finally, there is a readjustment in this country that producing things matters. It's not just inventing the things. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is true. So let's pick up phone calls here. Uh, David in Columbus, Ohio, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Hi, Representative. Um, I wanted to know why our foreign policy is so tied to uh, military and uh, arms production. Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think, one, they have a lot of say in uh, Congress. Uh, they uh, have lobbyists and funding individuals. I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and to give you a sense of perspective, I was one of two members out of 57 or 59, uh, or 60 total, probably 50, uh, 57 voted for the defense budget, and two of us, Sarah Jacobs and I, voted against it. And this defense budget uh, that we passed is more than the defense budget at the height of Trump. It's more than the defense budgets at the height of the Cold War. And uh, it's partly because people don't want to be seen as weak on national security, so they outbid each other on legacy industries that have nothing to do with it. And it's partly a lot of lobbyist interests of the big uh, defense contractors. It's also, isn't it, that uh, the defense industry has managed to build a defense plant in every single congressional district in America? Might have they have, and it, it makes it very, very hard, and that's why we have to have a vision of what the jobs are going to be. But, you know, it's not the military families or even these jobs and communities that are getting the bulk of the defense budget. It's, as you know, Tom, it's the executives making about $5 million a year on average at these big defense firms that are getting the, the, the profits. And so somehow we have to make it about these executives at, at defense contractors and convince people this is not about the jobs. We can have those jobs doing clean tech. We can have those jobs doing uh, a lot of other things uh, in, as opposed to creating legacy uh, uh, fighter jets that we aren't even using. Yeah, I got it. And in Chicago, you are on the air with Congressman, uh, Congressman Nakata. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Congressman. My, my question is, does it really... Uh, uh, is it registered when you leave a voicemail, when you call your anybody in the Senate or the House, as compared to talking to a real human being? Uh, it seems like some people, are, it's almost like 80% of the time you can actually talk to a person, and there's other people that you'll never get a human being. It's always going to voicemail. So you, do people really check those voicemails? Well, let me be candid. I think people, you know, they always get checked, the voicemails, because sometimes people need casework or help, and then you know, they get followed up with. But if it's just they're expressing an opinion, uh, then they probably just get tallied. So at the end of the week, I get a report saying, you know, X amount of people called in saying you should be for Build Back Better or you should be uh, uh, for uh, climate investment. And that's the, uh, that's, that's the biggest uh, value, because if a lot of people call in, then that it piques a person who's representing its curiosity, oh, is that uh, something that people in my district really care about? Archie in Tallahassee, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, uh, thank you, Ms. Mr. Hartman, for taking my call. And hello, Congressman. I am uh, talking about the Detroit situation, uh, being that I, I thought recently, and I might have this wrong, but I thought that uh, the necessary seat that we needed was filled on the commission that oversees the post office, and therefore uh, we now are in position to actually have the joy replaced. Uh, number one, do I understand that uh, properly? And if I do have it correct, how can we urge Biden to move more quickly 
than what it appears to be he is. Well, my understanding of the situation is that Biden has done everything he possibly can. He's a, a appointed the new board of governors who have the power to for, fire to, to joy, and now they have a majority. Uh, and now he doesn't have the authority to do anything more than that. Uh, we passed, finally, a package to give the uh, funding uh, on uh, uh, for the Postal Service, and they've been starved of funding by President Bush, Bush too. Uh, who had all these onerous requirements on them for future retirement that they had to put money away from. We're finally getting them the money they need. But we can have more oversight hearings if these independent board of governors don't act on DeJoy. I hope that they will. Michael in Bronx, New York, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. Greetings, gentlemen. Here's an interesting question. In light of the RNC and its chairwoman, Trump supporter, Ronald McDaniel, legitimizing the January 6th insurrection and riots, saying uh, what these Republicans stand for. We don't need to hear what the Democrats have to offer because we know what they have to offer. They've made the effort. They just keep getting blocked by the Republicans. Keep calling these Republicans out regarding January 6th, especially Ronald McDaniel, and then close out with the question to Republicans. What in the world do you have to offer to the people, the people of the United States, and put them on the spot? What do you think? I agree with you. I think, frankly, that you're right. That's our best chance in the midterms to remind people that the Republican Party is calling legitimate political discourse, uh, people scaling the Capitol, invading the Capitol, flying Confederate flags in members' offices and uh, charging on, trying to charge onto the House floor. And that if they win, you're going to have a group of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene having huge power in this country. It's a scary thought. And so we need to make that case. But the negative case is never sufficient. You also have to say, here's what we've delivered. A lot of people elected us. They wanted change and they wanted a $15 wage. They wanted increased uh, health care. They wanted to see that they'd have some relief from student debt. Now, we've done things with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, with the American Rescue Plan, but we haven't delivered enough. And that's what Bernie Sanders has pointed out. Some people have pointed out we've got to deliver for working class Americans. Casey in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, gentlemen. We're not hearing a lot about Build Back Better. Where's the negotiation stand? And I'll be keeping it quiet so as not to put party disunity back in the front page. No, we don't want to put something out until we know we could get the 51 votes. And I have said, and progressives have said, uh, we're willing to compromise. I mean, at this point, we're willing to basically take what can pass in the Senate as long as we can have climate, because we need that $500 billion of, of climate funding. But there's no point putting out hypothetical plans until we can get the 51 vote. And that's really what we're working on. Russell in Hendersonville, North Carolina, here on the air with Representative Kana. Hi, Representative Kana and Tom. I'm a contractor here in North Carolina, you know, middle class. And there isn't any accountability for the wrongdoings that happen in our government. This whole thing with Trump records, why? I mean, the law is there, and he's obviously, you know, broken the law. Why isn't somebody on it right now? You know, there should be a push on the Democratic Party, and I don't see that push, and so I get to the illusion. So what are, what are the Democrats doing? 
Well, we have to refer the matter to the Justice Department. I, I, look, this is illegal. I, if you work in the executive branch, you can't destroy documents because those documents are subject uh, to uh, record-keeping laws. And here you had reports that Trump is just flushing these documents down the toilet, literally, and that some of them could be classified, which would be a second violation of the law. At some point, this is not a matter for congressional oversight. This is a matter for law enforcement. And I think you, the question has to be asked, what is the Justice Department doing? Because Congress can't enforce the law. We can investigate, we can issue reports, we can legislate, but it's the Justice Department that has to enforce the law. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California, listening on KNYP here on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, I'm calling about the 14th Amendment and blocking people who are seditionists from serving again. I believe it takes a two-thirds vote to enact that, but my reading of the 14th Amendment is that it takes a one-third vote to enact that. It takes a two-thirds vote to block it. Tom did an op-ed on this uh, a couple months ago, and I called in at that time, and he agreed with me. Kevin, so let me understand, because so, I'm turning to Bruce Hackerman later today. So your understanding is on the Section 3 of 14th Amendment. It would take what vote for the House I, the Senate? Kevin, I just thought it was third. a simple majority. But I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm no expert on this, so don't, don't take it. Takes, it, my reading is it takes one-third to prevent them from serving and two-thirds to override that. Yeah. Well, actually, so, so yes. read it carefully. So you're, you're saying that the Democrats, just with Democratic votes, could do this? Yes. Yeah, let me... On let, both houses. Takes both houses, well, like one-third plus one in each. Well, I'm, let me, I'm, let I'm me pulling look up in, the I mean, 14th look, Amendment right now to, to, to see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it says, uh, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So right. that's the, the last thing is they can't serve again. That's correct. So but, my understanding was it would take a majority vote of 50 percent plus one to say, no, you can't serve anymore. And it would take a two thirds vote to say, we're going to let you serve. Because keep in mind, this was after the Civil War. And there were a lot of people who right. had engaged in the insurrection and they wanted to be able to selectively bring them back in. That's my understanding, Kevin. Congressman. Tom's understanding is probably better than mine, but I'm talking to literally one of the constitutional lawyers today who's been pushing me on this idea. Bruce Ackerman says he has someone in the Senate. You know, he understands this stuff backwards and forwards. And so I'm going to ask the first question I'm going to ask him is on this vote, because if it's going to take two thirds, it's not worth doing. If it can be done by a simple majority, well, then the Democratic Party has the ability to do that. Yeah, my read of it is it takes two thirds to undo a ban essentially, because, again, they wanted to be very, very careful about which Confederates they let back into Congress. Lloyd, in Ramage, West Virginia, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Hello. Uh, my question is, um, is there any plans for the January 6th committee to investigate any of these, uh, I think, like over 140-some of those senators that voted to not to um, confirm Joe Biden? Lloyd, I draw a distinction between people who voted not to certify the election, though that was a vote that I think was a terrible vote. You know, you have a constitutional right to vote however you want, versus some of the lawmakers who were actually out there instigating the insurrection, which you don't have a right to do. You can have a disruption in uh, encouraging violence. And right now there has not been uh, sufficient investigation or accountability for those individuals. In fact, 
it seems to me, just on looking at it still from the outside, because I'm not on the committee, that the people getting arrested are the are not are the foot soldiers that we haven't actually arrested the strategists and the masterminds of January 6th. And that's what we ought to be focused on. Thoughts on what we need to be looking at uh, as we go forward into this next week? Well, next week we're in recess, but uh, the week after that, I mean, we're looking for signs to bring back to life, build back better on climate, seeing if we can finally pass this uh, production increasing competition act that will help create more production and jobs uh, in, in this country. Thank you. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by today. Tom, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Back at you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'll be picking up your calls in just a moment. But first, I wanted to share with you my rant this morning that we published over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Why Republicans Now Love the Post Office. And, you know, just to give you context here, uh, one of my kids bought an electric vehicle um, about a year ago, an all 100% electric vehicle. First one in the family. Ours is a plug-in hybrid. Um, and, you know, where it runs 30 miles on electricity and then it kicks over to gasoline. Uh, but but hers was 100% electric, and then she had to drive to Seattle for a conference and suddenly discovered that, you know, there's not enough charging stations <laughs> along the freeway uh, or at truck stops or anyplace else. And why is that? Well, because there's not enough electric vehicles. Back in 2006, 16 years ago, is that 14 years ago? Whatever, I, I, I guess that's 16 years ago. The post office, in their annual report came out and said, we're going to jumpstart, I'm, I'm not even paraphrasing, this, is a, this was the essence of it. They said, we're going to help jumpstart the electric car revolution. We have the largest vehicle fleet in America, and, we've got, and they were running a surplus in 2006. They were awash in cash. We're not going to raise postal rates, but we are going to start buying electric, hybrid, hydrogen fuel cell. We're going to try a bunch of alternatives to gas and diesel and, and see what works and really jumpstart this whole process. That was 2006. In fact, this is what they said in their annual report in 2006, quote, with more than 216,000 vehicles, the Postal Service has the largest civilian fleet in the United States. We continue to evaluate various types and alternative fuel vehicles, including hybrid trucks, hydrogen fuel cell vans, electric step vans, and liquid natural gas delivery vehicles. The post office's vice president for engineering on May 17, 2006, keep in mind we're in the Wayback Machine here 16 years ago, publicly came out, this was at a, at a big 
press conference, basically, with what the newspaper described as, quote, nearly over a nearly 100 industry representatives, environmentalists, and postal service employees. This is the vice president for engineering, the guy who would be in charge of those you know, trucks. He says, quote, as an agency that delivers 145 million businesses and households six days a week, drives approximately 1.5, 1.1 1 miles a year, and consumes more than 125 million gallons of motor fuel annually, we are in a unique position to demonstrate to the public and other businesses the growing viability and positive environmental and energy-saving benefits of alternate, alternate fuel technologies. It's a big deal. Right, there was a meeting of mayors on uh, on May that same month in 2006, uh, in uh, Austin, Texas, for the uh, World Congress on Information Technology, and the mayor of Austin, Will Wynn, uh, proudly said, "Quote," and this was his speech, you know, with postal officials hanging around. He said, "Transitioning the postal fleet to plug-ins would serve as a springboard for the commercial production of delivery vehicles that could be extended to a wide variety of delivery services across America." The commercial market would also provide the economic certainty needed by automakers to make the production investments necessary for the mass production of plug-in vehicles. The plug-in technology is available right now and represents a realistic near-term solution to the serious problems of over-reliance on foreign oil, out-of-control gasoline prices, as well as greenhouse emissions." End quote. Now, given that you know, postal vehicles typically last 30 friggin' years, had 16 years ago the post office shifted to plug-in vehicles, we would have a very different America right now. But 16 years ago, there were some fossil fuel billionaires who thought, hey, we can't let this happen. And so uh, somebody reached out to Congressman John McHugh. He's a Republican from New York. He's a member of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council deeply in the pocket of the right-wing interests, as Wikipedia notes on Congressman McHugh's website or on his Wikipedia entry, quote, McHugh was chairman of the Oversight Committee's Postal Service Subcommittee for six years and worked to pass legislation to significantly reform the U.S. Postal Service for the first time since it was demoted from a cabinet-ranked department with passage of the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act in 2006, end quote. Well, what was that significant reform that McHugh got through Congress? Now, this was, by the way, in a lame duck session, and it was a voice vote. There's no record of who voted on this or how. Literally no record. This was during the Bush administration, Republicans controlled Congress, as well as the White House. What that legislation said, it was based on a piece of ALEC legislation that they were pushing in the states called the Unfunded Pensions Liabilities Act. And what it says is that the post office had to prepay for the next 50 years the, the cost of people who are going to retire 50 years out, which would push you know, into 70 years out, in, a, in effect. Uh, Pre-fund retirees 70 years from now. People who have not yet even been born. And this is being promoted by op-eds and PR groups from you know, groups affiliated with the Koch Network, including the Reason Foundation, the National Taxpayers Union, and the Cato Institute. It was a poison pill. And so the post office had to start setting aside $5 billion a year to pay for the retirement 50 years down the road of people who are Medicare eligible anyway. 
but to pay for their health insurance or their health care costs. It's nuts. It had never been done to any private business. No business in America does this. No government agency has ever been asked to do this. But what it did, and this is why they did it, obviously, is it stopped the post office in their tracks from buying new vehicles. They ran out of money. If you don't like the fact that they're going to buy non-fossil fuel vehicles, just take away their money. And that's what Republicans in Congress did in 2006. Well, now the news, and it's big news this week, right? Big, big story in the Washington Post just, just a couple days ago. Now Congress, uh, it, the House of Representatives has passed by an overwhelming majority, by the way, has passed a, a bill that would, uh, it was 342 to 90 was the vote in the House. A bill that would say, you know, we're going to do away with that pre-funding requirement. And the post office can take those billions of dollars that they've set aside for retirees, uh, health care, and they can use them to buy those vehicles that they want to buy now. Which raises the question, why would the Republicans suddenly want to go ahead or go along with giving the post office money? Why now? Well, it turns out the reason why now is because last week, Louis DeJoy said, I'm going to buy that fleet of vehicles that we were going to buy back in 2006. But instead of buying electric vehicles, I'm going to buy gasoline-powered and diesel-powered vehicles. It was a big screw you to Joe Biden. I mean, just an absolute screw you to Joe Biden. Jerry Connolly, a Democrat from Virginia in the House of Representatives, he chairs the House subcommittee that oversees the Postal Service. He's got the job that McHugh had back in 2006. He told CNN day before yesterday, quote, Postmaster General DeJoy's plan to spend billions on brand new gas powered vehicles is in direct contradiction to the stated goals of Congress and the president to eliminate emissions from the federal fleet. If Mr. DeJoy won't resign, the Board of Governors has got to fire him now. But they can't fire him because they need one more member of the Postal Board of Governors. And that appointment is being held up by Republicans in the Senate. This is nuts. But this is why, all of a sudden, Republicans are willing to vote to fund the post office, finally after 16 years, because now they've got a postmaster general who is saying, fossil fuels, yes, we love fossil fuels. It's astonishing. It's just astonishing. You can check it out. It's, it's over at HartmanReport.com if you want to read the details or share it with your friends. It's uh, absolutely free and there's no ads. Sylvia in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Sylvia, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's on your mind? I was thinking that we need big billboards, the Democrats do, everywhere, because a lot of people, I've got a lot of Republicans in my family, don't realize how much the Democrats have done for them. They'll argue with you about it. And I think that if they put up one side what we've done and the other side of what we would like to do for you, people would be more educated. Yeah, it's a good idea. I've often thought that every week they should pick one major piece of something that they've passed, you know, one consequential thing, and just have the entire caucus, every Democrat in the country, just talk about it as much as possible. And then the next week they shift to something else and really kind of pound it down so that people get it. But yeah, you're right, Sylvia. They, Democrats have a messaging problem, and, and I agree with you. I'm very hopeful that they will fix this soon. Sylvia, thank you. That was a great idea. John in Rome, Georgia. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks for taking my call. Um, 
wanted to tell you that Marjorie Taylor Greene is represents our district. And uh, right now she has four other Republicans running against her. But the kicker is, since the census was just taken, they have expanded her read, her district to include part of Cobb County, which is part of an Atlanta suburb. Yeah, it's where I used to live. Yeah, I, I know. And this woman is an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody in northwest Georgia is not like her. And it's been, we have been painted black, black, black. And I don't mean that racially, but I, it, it's like everybody that thinks about Northwest Georgia thinks, oh my God, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. They're yeah. all like her. Yeah, I even made a, uh, an offhand crack about, you know, she's probably going to get reelected because her district is as crazy as she is. And my apologies, John. I, I <laughs> Some in her district well, are as crazy as she is. Well, I accept your apology. But, you know, the crazy thing is, is that she did not live in Floyd County where Rome, Georgia is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she bought a house up here and she ran unopposed. Is she a carpetbagger? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, she is a carpetbagger. Where, where did she come from? Oh, uh, she came from down in Marietta. Ah, she, so she 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 did not live here. Amazing. She just she just showed up. So Marietta is Cobb County. So now the place where she came from is is part of her district. Is that, I mean Marietta has been changing demographically a lot since I lived there in the early 1980s. I mean you know it, it used to be kind of white suburbs and a lot of farms and things. And now it's it's uh, it's it's basically just become an extension of Atlanta. It's exactly right. But I just wanted to check in with you and let you know what was going on. Yeah. And at least she has some opposition. And the opposition is one of them. And I can't remember her opposition's name, but, but they have outraised her. So there's a, uh, you're talking a Democrat, a Democratic opposition. Uh, not at the moment. Oh, this is in the Republican primary? Yeah. Yeah, and okay. There are three Democrats running down here, and um, we'll see how that works out. But thank you for taking my call. I really my pleasure, John. It. Thank you for the call. And, and again, my apologies for slapping your, your <laughs> it's district. Like, it's, it's all good. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued 
at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Al in Zanesville, Ohio. Hey, Al, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I think the most pressing uh, issue regarding our country is the uh, role of the 1%. I think if you put big in front of any industry, there's a cabal there that, uh, you know, reaches its tentacles out to everything. And uh, they play both sides of the aisle. They uh, encourage this little intramural squabbling to take the focus off them. Uh, I think they control everything. If you say big oil, big pharma, big, you know, insurance. Uh, I mean, for example, we have uh, four meat producers that pretty much dictate the price of beef. Right. And, and they're uh, raising it right now. One, oh, yeah. Mm. And and um, all because of antitrust uh, yeah. legislation or antitrust that has not been followed allow these place these corporations to get so large that all of a sudden they have no more uh, competition right. and and you find it everywhere that's part of our inflation and, oh i and absolutely I agree i absolutely agree and, and, and in fact to this whole point al and and i'm not trying to sell books here you can you can uh, uh, you know borrow them from libraries you can get used copies um, but I wrote two books that are exact and, and they're bookends they, they you know that one segues into the other the hidden history of monopolies and the hidden history of oligarchy and it is exactly, exactly what you're talking about the monopolies created this huge economic infrastructure that elevated these billionaires to these incredible positions of, of political and economic power and then they reached out to government to try to convert the United States from being a functional democratic republic into an oligarchy. And we're about two-thirds of the way down that road right now. It, exactly. I mean, you know, I've, I've got some, uh, uh, some uh, recordings of your uh, uh, essays and stuff that, you know, inspire me. And I think the only uh, uh, solution to this is democracy. And, uh, I agree. you know... Well, there's, 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 we two, to, there's two intermediate steps. Number one, to deal with monopoly, we need to start enforcing the antitrust laws that are on the books. They, you know, Reagan right. suspended the enforcement of them in, in the summer of 1983, and it, has never, oh, yeah. it was never turned back on again. Um, and then the second is, is uh, you know, go back to a top tax rate, top tax bracket of 74%, like we had when Reagan came into office. That, you know, exactly. we, there, were, there were literally no billionaires back then, and that's why. Right, right. And and to further that, I mean, for our uh, democracy to happen, we need to uh, install the voter rights, uh, yes. get rid of gerrymandering, yes. and the voter su suppression that happens everywhere. Yes. And th and that would lead to transparency. And in spite of that, uh, it would break down some of the controls by the one percenters, I call them. Uh, it will produce some more uh, infighting. I mean, the states would probably have a little more power, so you'd have to resist that. But I yeah. think that's the biggest 
uh, issue facing our country. I agree with you, Al. I, I, I think that people. is the, that, you know, Citizens United basically is one of the things that made all this possible. And of course, the Reagan presidency. And that's the cancer at the core of our democracy. Al, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Cliff in San Jose, Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's up? Hey, Tom. Um, I've heard it said many times that these billionaires aren't job creators, right? All right. But due, due to some major short-sightedness or lack of foresight, Lex Luthor, you know who I'm talking about. Jeff Bezos? Yes. <laughs> he, he's putting a lot of people to work in Amsterdam disassembling a bridge so that his $500 million yacht can sail out of the port it's being built. That's right, out of the Rotterdam port. It's a, it's a 100-year-old bridge, too. It's classic. And, and you know what? Also, the kicker is the people over there aren't real happy about it, and there's some sort of social media campaign that when he finally does sail it out of there, they're going to be all lined up on the bridge throwing eggs. Yeah, I read <laughs> that. I read that. What's your, what's your opinion on that, though, the, egg, the egging plant? You know, far or does he deserve it? I think there's actually a serious issue here, Cliff. Um, you know, okay. setting aside the, the the levity of your call, um, right. the uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember her name. The woman who is now the foreign minister of Canada, and she used to write for the Financial Times. Um, she she published a book called Plutocrats back. I don't know, a decade ago or so. Krista uh, Freeland was her name, actually. Now, now it just popped into my head. Um, and and uh, she, in fact, she was a guest on this program when her book came out. And uh, she starts the book with this story from the 1890s, the late 1890s, when a, a, a very wealthy family in New York threw a, an annual ball where they, they took the entire Waldorf Historia and they blocked out all the windows and they cordoned off blocks around it to keep the riffraff away and all the hoity-toity, you know, hoi-polloi, high society of New York showed up in their limousines to, to, you know, for this ball. And, and what happened was New Yorkers were outraged. Um, the country, there was this, they, we were in a recession. There was the panic of 1896. This was 1898 that this happened. Um, we were recovering from a recession. There was widespread poverty and unemployment in New York and across the country. People were seriously pissed off. And that incident, that one incident, that one ball in New York City tripped the entire damn country so that when uh, President McKinley's, you know, when he was assassinated, Two years later, in, in the spring of uh, 1901, uh, his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, became president. And Teddy Roosevelt, up to that point, had just been known as, you know, the Rough Rider, as the guy who, you know, charged up San Juan Hill in Puerto Rico and helped seize Puerto Rico along with Smedley Butler. Um, but suddenly, because of this uprising against this very, very wealthy family in New York, who, by the way, were so humiliated by the blowback. I mean, it was all over the newspapers for two years. They were so humiliated by it, they moved to France and renounced their American citizenship. This very, very rich family. Sorry, I don't remember their name, but I, I write about it in, in my book, uh, Hidden History of American Oligarchy, also. And in fact, I'm quoting Krista Freeland in that book, which is why it's kind of top of mind. I just wrote that book a year and a half ago. And I think that we're, and the, and the reason I'm telling you this story, Cliff, is that I think we're at a similar moment. 
I think that there is an inflection point coming. I think the crash of Donald Trump, he is falling like a rock right now in Republican circles and across the country. And it's going to get a lot worse over the next six months or so. Um, and I, I think the crash of billionaire Donald Trump, the blowback to billionaire Rupert Murdoch and his little empire, the, 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 uh, the, the failing fortunes of right-wing billionaires who have been supporting people like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and whatnot, I think there's a perfect storm coming. And uh, I, I think that we're at a time very much like that. And I think that this is a symptom of it. And I don't think it's unique to the United States. I think that uh, you know, the United States and Western Europe equally, or also both, adopted neoliberalism back in the day. And that neoliberalism, you know, we call it Reaganism or trickle-down economics, um, but it's still here. And the first president to push back against it is Joe Biden, you know, in 40 years. And, and I think that there's a, a revolt coming, as it were. Cliff, thank you very much yeah. for the call. Uh, I, I, let, me just, let me just finish this up, okay, this, this rant, because I just have a, 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 I don't know, maybe a minute before we're going to hit a break. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that is, to that issue, there are two different views of what a revolution in America looks like. Uh, the, on the left, you've got the view that I just shared with you, which is I think that we're going to see, a, I think we are seeing a resurgence of labor unions. Look at, you know, Starbucks and Amazon. Starbucks just had a successful unionization effort in Buffalo, New York. Um, they're, they're firing people in other Starbucks around the country for trying to unionize. They're going to get some blowback from that. Amazon, they just, you know, the, the courts just ruled that they engaged in unfair labor practices down in Alabama. So you got that. But then on the other side, on the right, You've got right-wing crazies who are like openly calling for violent revolt, which is the you know the obviously the exact opposite. Thomas Massey, this this uh, you know, Trump humper in Congress, said, "quote If 30 to 40 percent could agree that this was legitimate tyranny and it needed to be thrown off, they need to have sufficient power without asking for extra permission. It should be right there and completely available to them in their living room in order to affect the change." He's calling for Americans, 30 to 40 percent of Americans, to be so well armed that they can take on the National Guard, the police, and the U.S. Army. Now, obviously, that ain't going to happen. I mean, I get it that you got a bunch of militia guys out there who love to play, you know, cosplay, uh, you know, soldiers or revolutionaries. But, you know, without Black Hawk helicopters, forget You're it. We're listening to the Tom Hartman program. There may be some political violence coming. In fact, there probably is. But I think the revolution is going to be a revolution of the people saying enough of these billionaires. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, along with every single Republican in the Senate, killed Build Back Better, Joe Biden's signature bill. In Arizona, Kirsten Cinema now has primary challengers, and they're, I mean, activists in Arizona are not taking this lying down. They are, they are standing up and fighting back and raising money and doing things. But what's going on in West Virginia? On the line with us is Kathy Ferguson. She is the interim executive director of Our Future West Virginia. The website is ourfuturewv.org, and the Twitter handle is ourfuturewv. And Kathy, welcome to the program. Tell us what's going on. What are you all doing there in West Virginia to uh, deal with your, uh, shall we say, Joe Manchin problem? Thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate being here. Yes, we are here, and we're trying to make our voices heard. 
Joe Manchin, unfortunately, has been saying for quite some time now that he hasn't heard from West Virginians, that we're not supportive of the Build Back Better Act or pieces that are contained therein. And there's a group of us out here that are knocking on doors, that are trying to get our voices heard and remind him and let him know that, yes, we are here and we want you to make sure that you pass Build Back Better. So tell us about Our Future West Virginia. What is the organization? How did it come about? What do you do? Well, the organization has been around for about 10 years, and it's basically a community organizing organization. What we really do is we're focused on grassroots-led movements and policy change. We are really working around issues of civic engagement, health care, food insecurity, environmental justice. There are many prongs that we're trying to address here in West Virginia, really just to make it a better quality of life for folks here, to allow folks to live in dignity and peace and really be self-determinant about the things that are happening to them. So we try and encourage folks to take leadership roles in their individual communities and advance themselves and make their voices and their needs known to legislators, and then hopefully actually uh, be inclined to run and start their own businesses and things that will um, further advance the state. That is, that is absolutely great. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we reported on this program and, and in other media, uh, you know, it was covering it as well, that although it didn't seem to break through to the big corporate media, that there were a couple of special interest groups that were running Isn't Joe Manchin Wonderful for West Virginia ads really heavily, big TV ad buys in West Virginia around the time that he was killing both Build Back Better and the Voting Rights, uh, the Voting, you know, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. How have those outside-funded mass television efforts and uh, and other efforts affected his popularity in that state? Is is he holding up? Are there cracks in the armor, as it were? I've I've also read articles. I don't live in West Virginia. A, a close friend of mine who edited several of my books does, and and he kind of you know, sends me things from time to time. Troy Miller is his name. He, in fact, he does a blog about it. But my sense is that, you know, the Democratic Party and Joe Manchin have been in West Virginia for the last 20 years or so, kind of the same thing. Do I have that wrong? And, and, and where is this all going? Oh, goodness gracious. That's a complicated question. Certainly, there's been a lot of infighting and there's been a lot of push to sort of progress the state with more progressive candidates and ideas and that type of thing. So there's a little bit of upheaval with that. But in terms of, you know, Manchin and sort of, you know, what he's representing and even the ads, I did notice the other day that there happens to still be all these thank you Joe Manchin ads, which were very hurtful to me. And I was trying to catch and see at the bottom of the screen who was responsible for those ads. But certainly they've been running. What I can tell you is that this summer, we did extensive work around the For the People Act and the John Lewis Act and really trying to get people out around that issue. And overwhelmingly, people were interested in that issue. People were calling Joe Manchin's office in droves. And we actually went to about 80 percent of the state or voters being responsive to that initiative. Then all of a sudden, come the fall, it almost did a complete reversal. Um, there was a lot of money that was coming in, as, you're say, as you said, with regard to messaging. And I think the unfortunate thing is that, I guess from a Democratic perspective, is that there hasn't been a lot of on-trend marketing or branding or messaging about the critical pieces of Build Back Better and even the voting rights and things that would actually help West Virginians. And it reminds me of that, you know, book, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas, mm -hmm. 
And so it begs the question, what is the what's the matter with West Virginia? A lot of it has to do with, again, that messaging and the dog whistles and things that are coming forward. There are a lot of things around, you know, um, culture wars and that type of thing. But I think when we're actually able to speak to one another, to talk to neighbors, to talk to friends and ask them about, you know, pointedly about certain things, um, about child tax credits or about the black lung excise tax or or excise tax for that fund or for health care, for people to be able to get hearing aids and things of that nature and universal pre-K. All these are types of things that resonate with people. They're the types of things that West Virginians need. And for some reason, it hasn't gotten across. So the folks that are, you know, boots on the ground folks, we're making a massive effort to make sure that folks actually know in a very plain, simple language what's at stake for West Virginia, how they stand to benefit, and why they need to contact Manchin and Capito. Yeah, yeah, Shelley Moore Capito, the Republican senator from your state as well. Yeah, spot on. What's your message to people who might be voting in the primaries? So the primary should be about the first week in May. That's typically when it is. I'm not sure the exact date offhand. Mm-hmm. Manchin is not on the ballot this year. He will be in his seat until 2024. So we're going to have to uh, sort of surfer through this just collectively yeah. and really just try and move him, you know, as a unit. But certainly, you know, there are other types of races that are critical, whether it's even the school board and city councils to our regular delegates and, and congressional district races. And so those things are very critical that will be coming up in this election in, in 2024. We'll just be setting our eyes on that. And we want to send a message to Manchin that, you know, you reap what you sow. And so if he doesn't do good by the West Virginia people, we will not do good by him. Kathy Ferguson, the interim executive director of Our Future West Virginia, ourfuturewv.org is the website, Our Future WV on Twitter. Kathy, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. My pleasure. I appreciate you, too. It's great work you're doing. Thank you. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's up? You know, great interview with Kathy from Our Future West Virginia. And in regards to uh, Manchin trying to use inflation as a case against Build Back Better, it's such a bogus argument. As you've said many times, the bill pays for itself. And then you look at what it would do to bring down child care costs, which are an astronomically high proportion of an American family's budget compared to all our other industrial allies. It's just absurd. And last month, More Perfect Union, they put out a five-minute video. I think you may have tweeted this. I'm not sure. But it's a five-minute video showing how Manchin timed each one of his sabotagings of Build Back Better with the corporate fundraiser. Yeah, I did retweet that. He was, Okay. Yeah. Everybody should check that out. Yeah. So, but the reason I'm calling today, Tom, is to highlight yesterday, Jake Johnson had a piece in Common Dreams uh, titled, For a Fraction of the Military Budget, We Could Prevent One and a Half Million 
COVID deaths. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I'm with you as far as these relaxations of the uh, mask mandates. I I think it's premature. It's based more. It's not based on science. But his article on Common Dreams yesterday, it's based on a new research paper. And it says for $35 billion, we could give two doses to everyone in the world you know, particularly these low-income countries, and it would save 1.3 million lives. And I believe the new Pentagon budget is $40 billion more than last year, which includes $25 billion that they didn't even ask for. Yep. So, you know, so, Tom, if we, if we took that extra military spending, we could save over a million lives, prevent the rise of new variants, and end the pandemic. I think that would be a good spending for national security and world health. What do you think? I agree, Jeff, and there's an even easier and cheaper way to do it, which is to empower many of those countries that have pharmaceutical manufacturing capability, and a surprising number of third world countries actually do, even if it's because first world countries built the factories there for cheap labor, to empower them to manufacture their own vaccines, and that's the TRIPS waiver uh, that you know, yeah. we keep talking about with the folks from Public Citizen. Um, and yeah. you know, it's it, and I, that has kind of fallen off the radar screen, you know, along with the whole COVID panic in general has fallen off the radar screen, and right. uh, is, I, well, I, I think it's unfortunate. And and it's a it's a very um, timely point you're making because I uh, I think Johnson and Johnson they've suspended their vaccine production, and that that's what the COVAX program was depending on the most, because right. it's just a one-shot vaccine. And apparently, I think I got this from Eric Topol, who does a great Twitter feed, Dr. Eric Topol. I believe that the production of the Pfizer and the Moderna is way behind any kind of time schedule that would allow for any kind of global program like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, my understanding is J&J stopped their production because of lack of demand. Um, you know, it, uh, people just don't want that. But it, they could that that would work great in third world countries where it's really hard to find people and they're not going to show up, you know, three months later for a second dose. Um, spot on. Je- again, you know, trips waivers, you know, just, just, uh, Jeff, thank you for the call. And uh, welcome back, Mark in Sydney, Ohio. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom. I was going to see if you have the same understanding that I have here from the founding fathers and things like that, that that every U.S. citizen has the right or responsibility or duty of questioning any narrative that the government or action that the government takes. I think that... that skepticism of government action is kind of built into the psyche of the United States and has been throughout our history. Why? Uh, well, because there's a, it was either the new, newest or a late, very recent Department of Homeland Security bulletin that came out that basically says that uh, anybody who publicly questions the, governor, the government's narrative or actions are to now be considered domestic terrorists. Yeah, it's not true, Mark. You're, you're reading right-wing uh, wackadoodle stuff on the Internet. I'd suggest you stop. <laughs> Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Oh, wonderful. Can you hear me, Tom? Yes, sir. All right. I love your show. I listen to you every day. And thank, thank you, Charles. Um, taking my call, sir. The thing is this. I'm not satisfied with what Joe Biden is doing. I'm kind of pissed off. The last straw... 
was the other day when the house did a sidebar, I think you said, and I'm sorry, the courts, they did a sidebar where they eliminated one of our voting districts in Alabama for, you know, for black. Um, yeah, the Supreme Court, their shadow docket, no argument, no debate, no hearings, no uh, amicus briefs. You know, and they basically said, yeah, it's okay with us if Alabama wants to eliminate an entire black district in their state and eliminate one black member of Congress. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, if I'm waiting till now, and I have not heard Joe Biden stand up and rebuke this action and, and start by the process, whatever it takes, yeah. to start putting Supreme Court. I can tell you why he hasn't, Charles. And I'm, I'm hopeful, by the way, the, 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 this woman, the Jim Clyburn, has. Um, and forgive me for not remembering the names of all these people who are coming forward right now. There's a bunch of them. Uh, but the woman that Jim Clyburn is promoting is basically a corporate lawyer. And, I, you know, I, I, that, that's what we got with Clarence Thomas. You know, I, um, I, there are some really good progressives on Joe Biden's list, and I'm hopeful that he puts them forward. And my guess is that if he is not, and, and it may just be that it never made the news, you know, but if he has not taken a position on that Supreme Court shadow docket, decision. I'm guessing it's because he doesn't want to be, you know, pouring gasoline on the whole Supreme Court debate right now while he's trying to get somebody before the court, um, you know, which might be politically wise. So let's let, let's let him get through with that, Charles. Charles, thanks a lot for the call. Steve in St. Louis. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, yeah, I was calling about the COVID. Um, you know, not only do people get strokes and heart attacks, but there's a whole host of other things, and the one that scares me the most are the autoimmune audio, audio diseases uh, that they're uh, that are popping up now in yeah. these people who have uh, actually gotten over COVID. Now, my sister and her husband, fully vaxxed, boosted, got COVID twice. Her husband had a heart attack on the first go around, and it it really did a number on his pericardium. And um, um, my sister's niece, who was pregnant at the time, she had it because she refused to take the vaccine while she was pregnant. Oh and they had to take the baby six weeks premature. Yeah. And they don't know if, you know, they haven't, they don't know what's going to happen to the baby, you know, down the road. They've got to wait. Right and find out because the baby's too young. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm going to mask until the CDC says otherwise. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Steve. And th yeah. thanks for, for sharing the story. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear uh, you know, about your relatives there. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot for the call. John in Cambria, California. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. Gotcha. I have a question on Business Insider on February 5th. I read that the car companies with their newer cars, you know how that's all basically your car is connected to the internet these days if you buy a new one they're going to start charging you a monthly fee even though your car is like equipped with heated seats heated steering wheel other features um even after your car is paid off and before it's paid off they're going to start charging you a subscription fee to activate your heated seats so Whoa. even though your seats already have the <laughs> option I, I, I don't know about that, John, but I can tell you, you know, right now that some of these car companies are charging a monthly fee to have access to the map, 
to have access to, to a whole lot of, you know, electronic features, special features, to have access to their, their version of LoJack so that, you know, in a, in, a, in a car accident, right. you know, it automatically dials 911. Uh, because these cars are basically, you know, computers on wheels and they're connected to the Internet via cell systems, cell towers, and uh, there's yeah. a fee for that. Yeah, I get it, John. I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, but thanks for the call. Uh, the heated seats, I don't know. Thanks, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. Thank you all for helping make this program work every single day. It is a, it is a, it takes a village. <laughs> And thank you for listening and for supporting our stations and our outlets and our sponsors. Thank you. Have a great weekend and get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.